0: Miketz. Joseph and the risks of power. Miketz represents the most sudden and radical transformation in the Torah. Joseph, in a single day, moves from zero to hero, from forgotten languishing prisoner to viceroy of Egypt, the most powerful man in the land, in control of the nation's economy. Until now, Joseph has rarely been the author of events. He's been the done-to rather than the doer, passive, not active, object, not subject. First his father, then his brothers, then the Midianites and Ishmaelites, then Potiphar and his wife, then the prison warden, all have directed his life. Among the most important things in that life had been dreams. But dreams are things that happen to you, not things you choose. What's decisive It's the way the last week's Parsha ends. Having given a favourable interpretation to the dream of the chief butler, predicting he would be restored to office, and realising that he'd soon be in a position to have Joseph's case re-examined and Joseph himself set free, the butler didn't remember Joseph and forgot him. Joseph's most determined attempt to change the direction of fate comes to nothing. Despite being centre stage for much of the time, Joseph was not in control. Suddenly, this changes totally and definitively. Joseph has been asked to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but he does far more than that. First, he interprets the dreams. Second, he maps that onto reality. These weren't just dreams. They're about the Egyptian economy in the course of the next 14 years, and they're about to become true now. Then, having made this prediction, he diagnoses the problem. The people will starve during the seven years of famine. Next, with a stroke of sheer genius, he solves the problem. Store a fifth of the produce during the years of plenty, and it will then be available to stave off starvation during the lean years. Margaret Thatcher was reported as having said of another Jewish advisor, Lord David Young, other people bring me problems. David brings me solutions. That was magnificently true in the case of Joseph and we have no difficulty understanding the response of the Egyptian court. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom Is the Spirit of God? At the age of 30. Joseph is the most powerful man in the region, and his administrative competence is total. He travels around the country, arranges for collection of the grain, and ensures that it's stored safely. There's so much that, in the Torah's words, he stops keeping records because it's beyond measure. When the years of plenty are over, his position becomes even more powerful. Everyone turns to him for food. Pharaoh himself commands the people, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. So far, so good. And at this point, the narrative shifts from Joseph, viceroy of Egypt, controller of the economy, to Joseph, son of Jacob, and his relationship with the brothers who 22 years earlier had sold him as a slave. It's this story that will dominate the next few chapters, rising to a climax in Judah's speech at the beginning of the next parasha. One effect of this is that it tends to move Joseph's political and administrative activity into the background. But if we read it carefully, not just how it begins, but how it continues, we discover something quite disturbing. The story is taken up in next week's parish in chapter 47. It describes an extraordinary sequence of events. It begins when the Egyptians have used up all their money buying grain. They come to Joseph asking for food, telling him they'll die without it, and he replies by telling them that he'll sell it to them in exchange for ownership of their livestock. They will indeed do so. They bring their horses, donkeys, sheep, and cattle. The next year, he sells them grain in exchange for their land. The result of these transactions is that within a short period of time, seemingly a mere three years, he has transferred to Pharaoh's ownership all the money, livestock, and private land, with the exception of the land of the priests, which he allowed them to retain. Not only this, but the Torah tells us that Joseph removed population town by town from one end of Egypt's border, to the other, a policy of enforced resettlement that would eventually be used against Israel by the Assyrians. The question is, was Joseph right to do this? Seemingly, he did it of his own accord. He wasn't asked to do so by Pharaoh. The result, however, of all these policies is that unprecedented wealth and power were now concentrated in Pharaoh's hand, power that would eventually be used against the Israelites. More seriously, twice we encounter the phrase, Avadim le Pharaoh, slaves to Pharaoh. One of the key phrases in the Exodus account, and in the answer to the questions of the child in the Seder service, but with this difference, that it was said not by the Israelites, but by the Egyptians. During the famine itself, the Egyptians say to Joseph, buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. Later, agreeing to a permanent arrangement whereby they will be Pharaoh's servants, giving him a fifth of all they produce, they say, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be slaves to Pharaoh. This entire passage which begins in our parsha and continues into next week's, raises a most serious question. We tend to assume that the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt was a consequence of and punishment for the brothers selling Joseph as a slave. But Joseph himself turned the Egyptians into a nation of slaves. What is more, he created the highly centralized power that would eventually be used against his people. Aaron Vildovsky, in his book about Joseph, called Assimilation versus Separation, says that Joseph left the system into which he was elevated less humane than it was by making Pharaoh more powerful than he had been. Leon Cass, in The Beginning of Wisdom, says about Joseph's decision to make the people pay for the food in the years of famine, food that they had themselves handed over in the years of plenty, Joseph is saving life by making Pharaoh rich and soon all-powerful. While we may applaud Joseph's forethought, we are rightly made uneasy by this man who profits from exercising his godlike power over life and death. It may be that the Torah intends no criticism of Joseph whatsoever. He was acting loyally to Pharaoh and judiciously to Egypt as a whole. Or it may be that there is an implied criticism of his character. As a child, he dreamt of power. As an adult, he exercised it. But Judaism is critical of power and those who seek it. Another possibility, the Torah is warning us of the hazards and obscurities of politics. A policy that seems wise in one generation discloses itself as dangerous in the next. Or perhaps Leon Cass is right when he says, Joseph's sagacity is technical and managerial, not moral and political. He's long on forethought and planning, but short on understanding the souls of men. What this entire passage represents is the first intrusion of politics into the life of the family of the covenant. From the beginning of the Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy, politics will dominate the narrative. But this is our first introduction to it, Joseph's appointment to a key position in the Egyptian court. And what it's telling us is the sheer ambiguity of power. On the one hand, you can't create or sustain a society without it. On the other hand, it cries out to be abused. Power is dangerous, even when used with the best of intentions by the best of people. Joseph acted to strengthen the hand of a pharaoh who had been generous to him and would be likewise to the rest of his family. He could not have foreseen what that same power might make possible in the hands of a new pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Tradition called Joseph Hatzadik the righteous. At the same time, the Talmud says that he died before his brothers because he assumed heirs of authority, even a tzaddik. When he or she enters politics, assumes airs of authority, and can make mistakes with the best of intentions, I believe the challenge of politics is to keep policies humane and that politicians remain humble so that power always so dangerous is not used for harm. That's an ongoing challenge and tests even the best. Shabbat Shalom.